بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد So this is uh, hopefully I'm correct it's lesson 87 and Two weeks ago, not last week, as I wasn't here, but two weeks ago, we were telling the story about the marriage of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to Sayyida Zainab bint Jahsh radiallahu anha. And we also told the story of another man named Uyayna ibn Husn and how he came and entered the home of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam without seeking permission. And we talked about that story and said that he had this conversation with the Prophet about Sayyida Aisha, right? And he offered to divorce one of his wives and have her marry him. And we mentioned that that incident, when Uyayna bin Husn entered his house without permission, was before the ayat concerning the hijab were revealed. And so today, inshallah, we will talk about that instance in the seerah when the verses of hijab were revealed. Because they were revealed in connection to the marriage between him and, and Zainab bin Jahsh radiallahu anhu. So before going into that story as it relates to the seerah, I want to make one small correction. Uh, last week, two weeks ago, I misspoke. And we were talking about Zainab. And I said that she died when she was 53. And I said that she was the first of the wives to die. And I misspoke when I said that she was the last of them to die. So I mixed up my words. She was the first of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ to die, not the last of them. That was uh, Um Salama radiallahu anha. So I just slightly misspoke there. The Prophet ﷺ said that those of you or whoever of you has the longest hand will be the first of you to meet me, meaning who will die after my passing. And the wives of the Prophet ﷺ took that statement literally and began to compare their hand sizes to each other, right? They didn't realize that it was not a literal statement, but it was a figure of speech. Because in Arabic, the word hand, it has so many meanings. And one of the majazi figurative meanings of hand is uh, generosity, uh, giving. It could also be power or conferring benefit and goodness to others. You say, you know, so-and-so, he has al-yadqula, he has the, the longest hand, meaning he is the most generous in giving. And that's what it was referring to. So out of all of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, she was known as the most generous. Sayyida Zainab. And so it was that she was the first of his wives to pass away. So I misspoke when I said that she was the last. She was not the last. She was the first. No? Well, Khadija was obviously the first, but we're talking about after the passing of the Prophet. After he passed away, the first one to die was Sayyida Zainab. And the last of them was Um Salama. So now we come to the story of the hijab. And as we've said before several times, 
the Quran al-Kareem is itself a kind of seerah in that it tells us the events and the lessons drawn from the events in the lifetime of the Prophet So the verses concerning the hijab are revealed in who knows what chapter. The verses that obligate the hijab, Surah Ahzab, exactly. In Surah Al-Ahzab, we have the verses that reveal the command to wear the hijab. And as a background to those verses, there's a whole series of verses. And those verses are revealed in connection to the marriage between the Prophet and Zainab. And the story is that during the walima of this marriage, after people finished eating, they began to congregate in different groups in the house and converse with each other, as people tend to do in walimas. You know, you have the dinner and people organize into their own little groups here and there and they converse amongst each other. And so the Sahaba were doing exactly the same. And as they're sitting in the house talking, the Prophet ﷺ is there along with his wife Zainab and she is sitting off to the side and literally facing the wall. This is before the ayat of hijab are revealed, but this is their modesty. And as they're talking, the, the stay became longer and longer and longer, and it became burdensome for the Prophet ﷺ. But such is his character, such is his haya, that he was shy to tell them to leave. And this is from his noble character, because although it is burdensome, he also doesn't want to break their hearts and literally kick them out, right? And so the Prophet ﷺ decides to get up and go outside and return soon after. He comes back soon after and guess what's happening? The people are still inside of the house talking with each other, you know? And the, the narrations say that some of the people in the house uh, got a clue. You know, they picked up on this. And they realized that it was something of a hint. You know, we, we give these kinds of hints. If you're talking with someone and they're talking for a long time and you want to leave, you may not tell them, stop talking, I have to leave. But you may do something else. You may look at your watch and look at them. And hopefully they get the clue that you're minding the time because you have other things to attend to. But sometimes you may do that, you look at your watch and look at them and they're still talking. They don't always get the clue. So some of the Sahaba got the clue when he left the house and came back in and they started to get up and leave. But others didn't get the clue. And so they're talking, enjoying themselves, just chatting amongst each other. And the hadith tells us that uh, Anas radiallahu anhu uh, he's reporting this incident. He said that eventually those who were talking the longest started to wrap up their conversation and get up to leave. The Prophet ﷺ had gone out again. And Anas gets up to go and tell the Prophet ﷺ that, yeah, they're, they're finally getting up and leaving. And at that moment, the Prophet ﷺ, uh, was going back into the house. And Anas recalls this incident and says, I was about to re-enter the house after speaking to the Prophet because he was there before and he left and he came back. 
He says, I was about to go back into the house with the Prophet ﷺ. Why? Why not leave with the others? Because he is the khadim. He is, he's, one of the, he's a servant of the Prophet ﷺ. So he is preparing to go back into the house after the people are leaving. But at this moment, he says, the Prophet ﷺ dropped the curtain to the house. He dropped that curtain between me and him. So he's now gone inside the house, dropped the curtain, and Anas is standing on the outside. And he says to Anas radiallahu anhu, fall back, ya bunay, fall back, dear son. And he says, from that day forward, the wives of the Prophet sallallahu were concealed from me. So he's going in and out of the house. He's the servant. He's running errands. He's doing all of these things. And so there is some interaction, but at this point, he, was no, he no longer saw the wives of the Prophet How old was he when this happened? The narration says he was 15. So he's, he's at the age of maturity. And this occurred right at the time when the verses of the hijab were revealed in Surah Al-Ahzab. So let's look at the structure of these verses that lead into the revelation of hijab as a command from Allah Ta'ala. In Surah Al-Ahzab, Allah Ta'ala addresses the incident of the walima and how people were as they sat and conversed among themselves. He says, Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, addressing the believers, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, la tadakhulu buyutan nabiyya illa an yu'dhana lakum ila ta'amin ghayra nadhirina inahu وَلَكِنْ إِذَا دُعِيتُمْ فَدَخُلُوا فَإِذَا طَعِمْتُمْ فَانْتَشِرُوا وَلَا مُسْتَأْنِسِينَ لِحَدِيثٍ إِنَّ ذَلِكُمْ كَانَ يُؤْذِي النَّبِيِّ فَيَسْتَحْيِي مِنْكُمْ وَاللَّهُ لَا يَسْتَحْيِي مِنَ الْحَقِّ وَإِذَا سَأَلْتُمُوهُنَّ مَتَاعًا فَاسْأَلُوهُنَّ مِنْ وَرَاءِ حِجَابٍ ذَلِكُمْ أَطْهَرُ لِقُلُوبِكُمْ وَقُلُوبِهِنَّ وَمَا كَانَ لَكُمْ أَنْ تُؤْذُوا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ وَلَا أَن تَنْكِحُوا أَزْوَاجَهُ مِنْ بَعْدِ مِنْ بَعْدِهِ أَبَدًا إِنَّ ذَلِكُمْ كَانَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ عَظِيمًا So he addresses the believers saying, O oh, you who believe, do not enter the homes of the Prophet without permission. So here, this is addressing the believers. There was a non-believer who entered the homes without permission before that, and that was Uyayna bin Hizm. So this is addressing the believers. Don't enter the homes of the prophets without permission. And if invited for a meal, do not come too early and linger until the meal is ready. But if you are invited, then enter on time. And once you have eaten, then go on your way. And do not stay for casual talk. Such behavior is burdensome to the Prophet. This is how you can translate yu'zin nabi. It, uh, it causes a burden. It causes some annoyance. There's a heaviness to that. And then Allah says, yet he is too shy to ask you to leave. Such was his haya, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Then Allah says, but Allah is never shy of the truth. Allah is never shy of the truth. And when you ask his wives for something, ask them from behind a hijab. Now here hijab means a barrier, not the, the attire, not the clothing. Ask them from a behind a barrier. This is pure for your hearts and for their hearts. And it is not right for you to 
burden the messenger of Allah or cause offense or harm, nor ever marry his wives after him, the mothers of the believers. This would certainly be a major offense in the sight of Allah. So this is the first set uh, of instructions concerning the interactions the believers are to have with the Prophet ﷺ in his house or houses, and also the conduct between them and the mothers of the believers. <clears throat> in the next verse, Allah Ta'ala says, In tubudu shay'an aw tukhfuhu fa inna Allah kana bi kulli shay'in alima. Whether you reveal something or conceal it, surely Allah has perfect knowledge of all things. And then He says, لا جناح عليهن في آبائهن ولا أبنائهن ولا إخوانهن ولا أبناء إخوانهن ولا أبناء أخواتهن ولا نسائهن ولا ما ملكت أيمانهن واتقين الله إن الله كان على كل شيء شهيدا. He says there's no blame on the Prophet's wives. And here the junah, the blame is talking about them uh, appearing uh, without hijab. There's no blame on them if they appear unveiled before their fathers, their sons, their brothers, their brothers' sons, their sisters' sons, their fellow Muslim women, and those malakat, uh, you know, the, the slaves or servants in their possession. And then he says, and be mindful of Allah, addressing the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, be mindful of Allah, have taqwa of Allah. Indeed, Allah is a witness over all things. So Allah is mentioning verse after verse before we get to the actual command. So after this, Allah Ta'ala reveals the verse that most of us are very familiar with, where he says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ وَمَلَائِكَتَهُ يُصَلُّونَ عَلَى النَّبِي Ya taslima. Indeed, Allah and His angels send salat upon the Prophet, O you who believe, invoke uh, salawat, salat upon him, and plentiful salutations. So, after that command is revealed concerning salawat, Allah Ta'ala says, those who offend Allah and His Messenger are condemned by Allah in this world and the hereafter, cursed. And He has prepared for them a humiliating punishment. And then the next verse. Now we're getting closer and closer. Also, Allah Ta'ala is talking about the conduct you have in the house as in is focusing on a particular thing to avoid. And that is avoiding adha. Adha is one of those words that doesn't translate so easily into English. The literal translation is injury. But you see how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, uh, Those who cause adha to Allah and His Messenger. You couldn't really translate this as injury to Allah because nothing can harm Allah. Um, that's not what it means here. It's cause offense through behaviors, right? So this is the other, the, the offensive behavior, the bad conduct, uh, burdensome uh, character, you know, these kinds of things. After this, Allah Ta'ala, He says, 
والذين يؤذون المؤمنين والمؤمنات بغير ما اكتسبوا فقد احتملوا بهتانا واثما مبينا and those who uh, do this other again to the believing men and believing women unjustifiably without right they will bear the guilt of slander and blatant sin now we come to the verse right allah ta'ala addresses the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam saying ya ayyuhan nabi qul li azwajika wa banatika wa nisa'il mu'minin yudnina alayhinna min jalabibihin he says, O Prophet, instruct your wives, daughters, and the believing women to draw their cloaks over their bodies. In this way, it is more likely that they will be recognized, meaning as virtuous people, and not be harassed, not subjected to adha. Again, that word. And Allah is all forgiving and most merciful. So what you see here is Allah Ta'ala in verse 53 is talking about the wives of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But in this verse, verse 59, Allah Ta'ala is also addressing all of the believing women. And this is the verse that uh, prescribes the hijab not just for the wives of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, but for all of the believing women. And this is revealed in the incident of the walima that he had in the marriage to Sayyida Zainab bin Jahsh radiallahu anha. After the ayah commanding the hijab for the believing, the mothers of the believers and all of the Muslim women, after this verse, Allah then revealed, لَإِن لَمْ يَنْتَهِ الْمُنَافِقُونَ وَالَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَرَضٌ وَالْمُرْجِفُونَ فِي الْمَدِينَةِ أَنُغْرِيَنَّكَ بِهِمْ ثُمَّ لَا يَجِدُونَكَ فِيهَا إِلَّا قَلِيلًا If the hypocrites and those with sickness in their hearts and the rumor mongers in Medina do not desist, we will certainly incite you against them and then they will not be your neighbors there any longer. What is the connection between this verse and the previous verses? Why does Allah Ta'ala address the believers concerning their behavior in the homes of the Prophet Sallallahu and then address the believing the mothers of the believers and then address the Prophet concerning the hijab? Why does he address all those and then mention the hypocrites at the end of this? Uh, the reason why Allah Ta'ala addresses the issue of the hypocrites in this verse is because remember after the marriage between the Prophet ﷺ and Zainab there were these rumor mongers uh, spreading rumors and bad mouthing the marriage because why? because Allah instructed the Prophet ﷺ to marry Zainab and that broke the jahili custom that considered the adopted children equal in all ways to one's biological children in the naming convention and in inheritance and in not getting married to them, right? So because of this, some of them were backbiting the Prophet ﷺ and Zainab for them getting married. And they're saying, oh, he married his uh, sons, his adopted son's ex-wife. And for that reason, Allah Ta'ala revealed this verse 
talking about the, not just the hypocrites, by the way, right? Allah Ta'ala doesn't mention just the hypocrites. He says the munafiqun, the hypocrites, وَالَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَرَضٌ Those who have a sickness in their hearts. And الْمُرْجِفُونَ فِي الْمَدِينَةِ The murjifun are the ones who, you know, they're believers, but they get caught up in rumors and gossip and they don't verify things and they just wag their tongues. These are the murjifun. They're hearing this and they're spreading it, right? Uh, so these are three, dips, three different types of people addressed in the verse. So this is in the incident of the marriage between the Prophet ﷺ and Zainab bin Jahsh. So we see that the seerah is not just describing the marriage, but also events that took place in the walima and their long-standing effects and sharia that is being revealed in connection to that event. In this case, the revelation of the manners of visiting, uh, segregation, and the hijab, and then the hijab for all Muslim women. So this was in the fifth year after the hijrah. Now, in the month of Sha'ban, in the fifth year of the hijrah, we come to another battle. And in the big picture, this was not a very huge battle. It wasn't a consequential battle like Badr or Uhud. But it was consequential in other ways besides the battle itself. And that is the battle of Mustaliq. Ghazwa of Banu Mustaliq. The Ghazwa against the people of Banu Mustaliq. This occurred in, according to most of the scholars of Sirah, in the month of Sha'ban, in the fifth year after the Hijrah. Now, Ibn Ishaq and Bukhari say it was in the sixth year of the Hijrah, while Ibn Sa'ad and Musa ibn Uqba say it was in the fifth year, and that seems to be the strongest view. It was in the fifth year after the Hijrah, exactly where we are. And this Ghazwa, again is called the Ghazwa of Banu Mustaliq, is also called the Ghazwa of Al-Murayisira. It's given two names. And the reason why it's given two names is because the tribe is the tribe of Banu Mustaliq. The reason why it's called the Ghazwa of Al-Murayisir is because that tribe lived near a large body of water, like a pond, called Al-Murayisir. And so the battle was given both names, either the tribe or the body of water that they lived near. And this tribe, the tribe of Mustaliq, is actually a sub-tribe or a clan of Khuza'a, and they live near this pond. And this pond is located about two-thirds of the distance between Mecca and Medina. So if you look at Mecca here and Medina north, it's closer to Mecca. It's like one-third the distance going, to Mecca, going up to Medina. So this battle took place in the fifth year of the Hijrah in the month of Sha'ban. If you remember, when we were talking about the seerah in the Meccan period, before we even got to the life of the Prophet ﷺ, we were going into some detail about the history of Arabia and how idol worship spread among the Arabs of that time. And in that conversation, we talked about the three main idols among the Arabs of that time. Who are, what are these three main idols? Does anyone know? Three. Al-Uzza, 
and Manat. So these are the three main ones. Alat, Al-Uzza, and Manat. So guess what? Banu Mustaliq, where they live, they house the shrine for the idol of Manat. They house it. Not all the idols were inside of the Kaaba, right? Some of them were elsewhere. So they housed that shrine, that area where the idol of Manat was located. And when the Quraysh had attacked Medina in the Battle of Uhud, there are some narrations which say that Banu Mustadiq, the people of this tribe, sided with the Quraysh and offered to help them in the Battle of Uhud against the Muslims. These are Mushrikun. And this Ghazwa, the reason for it was because the Prophet ﷺ was informed that the chief of this tribe, known as Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar, was planning to gather his tribe and as many other Bedouin tribesmen as he could to go north and attack the Muslim community. And we keep hearing this after Uhud, don't we? After Uhud, you hear so many times, this tribe and that tribe, they're gathering forces and the word gets back to the Prophet ﷺ and he preempts their attack by going out to them. Now the question we should ask ourselves is, why is this happening so much now? Why is this happening after Uhud when it wasn't happening after Badr or before Badr? Why after Uhud and why so frequently? And there's a couple of answers to that. The scholars mention two main reasons. The first reason we've mentioned a few times already, which is that after the Battle of Uhud, a lot of these tribes sensed that the Muslims were not as strong as they thought they were, which they, had, which they believed to be the case in the aftermath of Badr. After Uhud happened, they realized there's still some vulnerability. Maybe there's a chance we could take something of theirs and we can raid them. Right? That is one reason. The other reason is economic. Because don't, don't forget, the Prophet ﷺ is located in Medina. And he has allegiances with some of the uh, more distant tribes south of Medina and beyond. And these alliances mean that that normal trade route from Mecca to Sham is still cut off for the people of Mecca. They still have to go the Najdi route. They can't go the usual route, and that's been the case for a while now. This means that Quraysh are suffering economically from this uh, impeded trade route. If Quraysh and the people of Mecca are affected economically by the blocking of that trade route, it's also going to have after effects on the other tribes and clans outside of Mecca. So Banu Mustalaq, they don't live in Mecca, right? They live north of Mecca. But they're also feeling the economic impact of those trade routes being blocked. That's impacting the Quraysh and it's impa- impacting the others around them as well. And so they wanted to use this opportunity to get some economic advantage and raid the Muslims and acquire spoils of war, cattle, livestock, money, whatever it may be. So the Prophet ﷺ hears the rumor that this tribe of Banu Mustaliq 
or organizing forces within their own tribe and trying to rally others to join them. So what did he do? He did what he always does in, this, in these situations. He sends people to investigate. He doesn't just go straight there. He sends a scout, someone who is collecting intelligence to see how many people are there, what are their intentions, are they truly intending to attack, what do the Muslims need to know in order to respond properly. So the Prophet sends a Sahabi by the name of Buraida ibn Husayb. And Buraida ibn Husayb goes there to investigate. So he's going there under deep cover, as we would say, and he's pretending to be a Bedouin, you know, a Bedouin from that region who wants to get involved and get a share of the booty. He wants to go and join in and volunteer himself. So he goes to Banu Mustaliq, pretending to be this Bedouin, and he approaches this tribal chief, Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar. He says, I hear you're preparing to launch an attack uh, against the Muslims. Allow me to join you so I can get a share of the spoils too. Al-Harith, of course, wants as many people as he can get. So he's very happy with this, and he allows Buraida to join him. And Buraida used that open invitation to say something else. Buraida says, please allow me to go ride out back to my people and get some of my people to come. Now his people are the Muslims. But Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar thinks he means his you know, other Bedouin tribesmen who also want to join in on this attack. So he's happy. The more the merrier. The more people we can get, the better. Sure, go get your men. And Buraida did just that. He went to go get his men, his people. He goes back to Medina. Upon arriving in Medina, he tells the Prophet ﷺ of the intentions of Banu Mustaliq, the number of troops they have, their weapons, their horses, all of the intelligence needed to mount an effective attack to know who your enemy is and what you're facing. Meanwhile, Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar has no idea what's going on. He thinks that, okay, this Bedouin man, Buraida, is going to get his tribesmen. He'll soon come back with a bunch, a bunch of other tribesmen and we'll have a larger army. What he doesn't realize is that Buraida was a Muslim and that he's bringing back this intelligence and that with him, He'll have with him the Prophet ﷺ and so many Muslims to attack. Now, when this intelligence was brought to the attention of the Prophet ﷺ, he gathered 700 fighters from the Muslims. And the Sira mentions that there were 30 horses, which is a, a substantial number. You have 30 cavalry. And it also mentions in the Sira that some of the munafiqun also joined in this ghazwa. Why would they do that? They joined this ghazwa because they realized that, well, Banu Mustadiq is a small tribe. They don't have a lot. So there's no real danger of us getting killed in this. We're going to outnumber them. It will be an easy fight. So if we go, we'll get a chance to get some of the spoils. So the munafiqun also join in and go out with the Muslims. The Prophet ﷺ places uh, Zayd ibn al-Haritha in charge of Medina. 
And there's a beautiful connection between this and future events, as you'll see. He places Zayd as the Imam in Medina while they're gone. Uh, Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar, this chieftain of Banu Mustalaq, he also sent a spy out to Medina, because that's what you do. He sends a spy out to Medina to find out what the Muslims are doing. But guess what happens? He gets caught. He gets apprehended, and the Muslims begin to question this man of Banu Mustalaq who's spying on their behalf, asking for operational details, but he refuses to give any information. Now that man's eventually killed. But eventually word gets back to Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar that his spy was killed and that the Muslims are making their way in force to come and attack him and his forces. So the word is out. And when the word spread, the, the narrations say that the people were filled with a lot of fear and anxiety, such that the allying tribes that volunteered to join Banu Mustalaq, they decided to go back home. So he has this, it's, it's an, not an insubstantial force, but now when the word is spread that the Muslims are coming, all those other tribesmen that he gathered to join his own, they scattered. It's just Banu Mustalaq all alone now to face the Muslims. This is not looking good for him. So eventually the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims arrive at Al-Muraysi'ah and they set up their camp. And with him was Sayyida Aisha and Umm Salama. This is important too because it tells you that they did not perceive this battle to be one that was very dangerous. They didn't perceive that the, you know, the, the tie, it could, it could go either way for Banu Musalaq or for the Muslims. There was the perception that they would be victorious and this would not be such a severe battle that you would want to leave your, your wives back home in safety. So he would bring his wives. He gave the raya, the battle standard, of the Muhajirun to Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu. Uh, one narration says it was Ammar, but Abu Bakr was likely the one who had it. And for the Ansar, the one who carried the battle flag was Sa'ad ibn Ubadah radiallahu anhu. When they gathered their forces and he gave the battle flags to the Muhajirun and the Ansar, he tells Umar radiallahu anhu with his loud and booming voice, to shout at the troops of Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar, telling them, say, La ilaha illallah, and you will gain protection of your people and property. That's what he said. Now here's the thing, they rejected. But what he said, the promise actually still came true. The protection in their people and property, still came true, even though they initially rejected that offer to become Muslim on the spot and in hostilities. So because they rejected it, eventually the battle started. And it started by the exchange of arrow fire from a distance. Both sides are trading arrow fire back and forth. And eventually the Prophet ﷺ tells the Muslims to align in a single battle row and to march head forth into the enemy ranks and battle them, right? So when they go forth as this single unit, it was a very easy victory for the Muslims. In fact, you have 700 Muslims 
And of the mushrikun, there were 10 who were killed in battle, just 10. And of the Muslims, no one was killed except one. And it was accidental. It was accidental. When they defeated Banu Mustalaq in this relatively quick battle, they killed 10. They took the rest as prisoners. And the spoils they gained were 2,000 camels. It's a lot of money. 5,000 sheep and 1,000 prisoners. 1,000 prisoners. And as we said, the only casualty on the Muslim side was one of the Ansar who was accidentally uh, mistaken for an enemy troop and fired on by a Muslim. And that, that, that Sahabi was Hisham ibn Subaba. Now, Hisham ibn Subaba radiallahu anhu was killed accidentally by a Muslim who thought he was from the enemy side. And there's a story here too, because Hisham ibn Subaba had a brother who wasn't a Muslim. And his brother was still living in Mecca. And his name was Miqyas ibn Subaba. When Miqyas ibn Subaba found out that his brother Hisham was killed accidentally by one of the Muslims, he goes to Medina and he pretends to convert to Islam and demands the blood money for his slain brother. So he, he becomes a fake Muslim, pretends to take shahada, be a Muslim, demands the blood money, and the Prophet ﷺ gives him the blood money. When he received that blood money, before he went back to Mecca, he went out and found the man, the Muslim man who accidentally killed his brother and murdered him. And he goes back to Mecca with the money too. He, Miqyas ibn Subaba, is one of the nine people in Mecca to whom the Prophet ﷺ did not grant amnesty after the conquest of Mecca. When we have later on in the, in the eighth year, we have Fatah Mecca, we have the Prophet ﷺ saying to the people, Idhabu uh, go, you're given amnesty. That applied generally except for nine people who did not receive amnesty, and Miqyas ibn Subaba was one of them. So that's a side story that appears later on. So as we said, the Muslims had captured how many prisoners? 1,000 people, 1,000 people, prisoners of war. And as we said, this was not a major battle. Right? It didn't take very long. Nevertheless, major incidents are mentioned in connection with this battle. So the, the Ghazwa of Banu Mustalaq, although a small battle, led to major events. Of those major events, the most famous of them, and the most major, is Hadithatul Ifk, or the incident concerning the slander of Sayyida Aisha, radiallahu anha, which we'll talk about next week, inshallah. That's incident number one, a major incident that occurred in the aftermath of this Ghazwa. The second incident that we'll talk about now is the marriage of the Prophet ﷺ to Juwayriya bint Al-Harith. That's a familiar name, isn't it? Al-Harith who? Al-Harith ibn Abi Dira. She is the 
daughter of the chief of Banu Mustalaq who incited this whole thing. She becomes his wife. And this is a very beautiful story in connection with this ghazwa and the marriage to her. So her name was not always Juwayriya. That name was actually changed. Her name, her birth name was Barra. And Barra means pious. But because that name has, you know, it, it implies a sort of self-praise. You know, my name is pious. Right? The Prophet ﷺ changed it to Juwayriya. And she is the daughter of the tribe chief Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar. And she was married. Her husband's name was Musafir ibn Safwan. But he was killed in the battle. So now she's a widow. And she's a prisoner of war. She's captured. And taken to Medina. Along with the other members of that tribe who were captured. So Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha. She recounts the story of Juwayriya. And she recounts it as one who encountered her before and after the marriage. So she's recalling these events. And she says that Juwayriya was captured and given to an Ansari man named Thabit bin Qais ibn Shammas. And she agreed with Thabit ibn Qais that she would purchase her own freedom. So when they divide these uh, these prisoners, Thabit gets Juwayriya. Juwayriya had no interest in being in this kind of situation. And because she is a noble woman, the daughter of a tribal chief, she made an arrangement with Thabit that she would purchase her own freedom. She would get the money, get it to him in return for him freeing her. Now, Sayyidah Aisha says she was very sweet and very beautiful, and no one saw her except that they were captivated by her beauty. She says that while she was in Medina, Juwayriya came to her house. Aisha is saying this. She came to her house to ask the Prophet ﷺ for some financial help in securing her freedom. She's taken as a prisoner. She's not taking money with her. She needs some financial help. She doesn't have it on her. So she goes to the house of the Prophet Aisha's house, to ask for some financial help in getting her freedom. Aisha says, as soon as I saw Juwadiya, I disliked her. As soon as I saw her, I had disliked her. Because I knew the Prophet would see in her what I am seeing in her. What is she seeing in her? It's not just the physical beauty. She's seeing in her uh, a beauty, a physical beauty, but also a certain way of character, comportment of carrying herself. She knows what she wants, right? She's trying to negotiate her own freedom. She's a noble woman, you know, the daughter of a tribal chief. This is a person who has the esteem of her fellow tribesmen and tribeswomen. So she said, as soon as I saw her, I disliked her. It's almost as if she saw what might happen. And so Juwayri introduced herself to the Prophet ﷺ and said, I am the daughter of the chief of my tribe, and you've seen what's happened to me. I have made arrangements to secure my freedom from Thabit ibn Qais, so I need your help in this matter. 
I need some financial help that Thabit can receive whatever he's demanding in return for my freedom. The Prophet says to her, what if I give you something better than that? Better than freedom from Thabit bin Qais. She says, what is that? He says, I will set you free myself and marry you. And she agreed to this, right? She becomes a Muslim and she gets married to the Prophet and her mahar was her freedom. That's the mahar, being freed from Thabit bin Qais, becoming a Muslim and becoming his wife Now who are these people that are captured from Banu Mustalaq? These people are all relatives of Juwayriya in some way or shape because she's the daughter of the chief of the tribe. They're all either close kin or distant kin. They all know each other. So there's, there's a bond of closeness between Juwaidiyah and the other 999 people who were captured and taken to Medina. She now gets married to the Prophet She becomes a Muslim, she gets married, and eventually the news spreads around the Muslims in Medina. When the Ansar find out that she became Muslim and got married to the Prophet and was freed as a result, they said, how can we have the ashar, the in-laws of the Prophet as our slaves. That's exactly what it is. Because if, if he is now married to Juwaidiya, if she is now his wife, that means that all of these other people captured who are relatives of her are in-laws of some sort to, who is now a wife of the Prophet how can you as a Muslim abide that? How can you allow for yourself to have a slave? And that's what it was. How can you have a slave or a servant who has some relationship through marriage to the Prophet So out of that reverence for the Prophet these Ansar who had these slaves all set them free in mass. So now they secured freedom. And as they're all freed, they're still there in Medina. They, ha- you know, they haven't yet gotten their things together and made their way back to Banu Musalaq to Al-Muraysia. What's happening with the father of Juwaidiyah? Where is he? He wasn't killed in battle. He wasn't killed and he wasn't captured either. He got away. But by now, as all of these people are there captured in Medina, Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar makes his way from Al-Muraysir all the way to Medina to negotiate with the Prophet the freedom of his people. Right? This is an opportunity to pay a very hefty ransom and it's also a deterrent from ever showing aggression towards the Muslims again. So Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar makes his way to Medina to negotiate the ransom and you know, on his way and even arriving, he has no idea what's transpired. He has no idea that Barra is now Juwadia and that Juwadia is now a Muslim and that Juwadia is also now the wife of the Prophet وسلم, whom he was trying to attack. He has no idea until he gets there. He gets to Medina and he asks for his daughter back. 
And the Prophet ﷺ said to him, that is her decision. She can go back if she wants to. Now this is where you have to think about strange coincidences, although there's no coincidence in reality. There's no real sultfa. Uh, think about the connections, the strange connections between events. Go back before the battle. Uh, who was appointed as the Imam of Medina when the Prophet ﷺ went with the Muslims to Al Muraysia? Zayd ibn Haritha. What do we know about Zayd? Zayd was the adopted son of the Prophet. ﷺ. Remember that story. Eventually his family found out that he's in Mecca and they found him and they appealed to him to return with them to their tribal area. And Zayd was given this choice and he chose to remain with the Prophet. Juwayriya is captured. She becomes a Muslim, gets married and is freed. The father wants her back. She is also given the choice to go back and she chooses to stay as well. So There's an interesting connection. The one who was given that choice was the Imam while they were going for battle, eventually capturing one who would also eventually be given the exact same choice of Zayd ibn Haritha, and who also chose to remain with the Prophet This was such a, a moving incident for Al-Harith, the father of Juwaydiyya, that he embraced Islam. He became Muslim as a result of seeing this character, this beauty, this excellence in conduct, even after he had aggressions towards the Muslims. He's so moved that he becomes a Muslim in Medina. Right? And because these are our tribal people, and he is their leader, the tribesmen of Banu Mustalaq under the leadership of Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar following his lead they also become Muslim he goes back to his tribe and his tribe becomes Muslim as well so they were just days before aggressors and now they're all Muslims and the Prophet ﷺ gave all of the camels back, all of the sheep back, all of the spoils back. They were all freed. They're all Muslims. And the tribe at Muraysi' became, became Muslim as well. All because of anha. So this is a beautiful story because they were granted the truest form of freedom. Go back to the beginning when the Prophet ﷺ tells Umar to shout with his loud voice, Say La ilaha illallah and you will be protected in your persons and your property. They didn't agree to that in the beginning. They got into this fight. They were captured. But eventually they became Muslim and they were protected in their persons. And they were protected in their property. They received it all back. and. Better than all of that, they gain not just freedom after being captured from the physical bondage, they also gain the, the true freedom of, of hurriya through la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. Greater freedom than just freedom from physical bondage. Now there's a hadith in connection with this 
and some similar incidents. Uh, in this hadith, the Prophet sallallahu says, عَجَبَ رَبُّكَ مِنْ قَوْمٍ يُسَاقُونَ إِلَى الْجَنَّةِ بِالسَّلَاسِلِ Your Lord marvels at a people who are driven to paradise in chains. What does that mean? The scholars say that it is about people whose path to Islam was in bondage. They were captured as aggressors. They were in chains, literally. But they're being led to Jannah as if in chains because when they go to Medina and they have these experiences, Allah opens their heart and gives them hidayah and they become Muslim. And so it's as if they're being led to Jannah in chains. That applies to these people and others as well. Uh, Ibn Ata'illah, he takes this hadith and gives it a very interesting twist. Ibn Ata'illah, in his hikam, he says that Allah knows that the ibad, the, the servants of Allah, uh, are, they don't have strong resolve, right? They, they don't have this strong resolve. And for that reason, Allah made certain things obligatory and certain things recommended. Not everything is obligatory and not everything is recommended. It's as if he's saying, if everything was just recommended, if everything was just voluntary, Allah knows that people will most likely not do what they should do, what is better for them, if it's all recommended. But out of His mercy, He made certain things obligatory that they know they have to do, even if they're tired, even if they are stressed, even if they don't always feel like it. Right? Because you don't always feel like getting up at four in the morning for Fajr. You don't always feel like fasting when you're tired and working and sleep deprived and thirsty. But you still do it because you know it is wajib. And so he ends that hikmah by saying, وَعَجَبَ رَبُّكَ مِنْ قَوْمٍ يُسَاقُونَ إِلَى الْجَنَّةِ بِالسَّلَاسِلِ Then your Lord marvels at a people who are driven to Jannah in chains. And he says here, بِالسَّلَاسِلِ ijab The chains of obligation. Right? In that sense, it's not a recommended thing where you have the freedom of doing it or not doing it. You are in a sense chained to the obligation because it is binding on you. And through that wajib and those wajibat, it's as if you are driven to Jannah, بِسَلَاسِلِ uh, ijab, he says, the chains of obligations. Right? That's a more broader application of the hadith to every Muslim, not just those who are literally captured. So, reflecting on this incident, Sayyidah Aisha, remember what she said? When I first saw her, I instantly disliked her. Listen to what she said later on, as she was reflecting on Juwaidiyah, and the role she played in Islam. She says, radiallahu anha, I don't know of any woman who brought more blessings to her tribe than Juwaidiya. Because she was the sabab, she was the main cause. Juwaidiya, captured, negotiating her freedom, becomes a Muslim, marries the Prophet sallallahu secures her freedom, uh, Father is moved by all of this, becomes Muslim. The prisoners become Muslim. They're freed too because of Juwaidiyah. All their belongings are returned to them. They go back to, 
through Al-Muraysir and the others that were there became Muslim too. And so now you have this outpost of Islam outside of Mecca. Now, in the fifth year after the Hijrah, all as the result of this very small expedition when you compare it to Uhud and Badr and whatnot. Very small. But, subhanAllah, we, we always see that where there's uh, great openings and great good and great ease and facilitation, there's often right around the corner difficulty, trials, tribulations, tests. And that's exactly what happens after this too. Right? And that is when we get to the incident of Hadithatul Ifk, or the, the incident concerning the slander against Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha, that was in connection with this incident too. So as this great good is unfolding, there's also a great evil that is unfolding. And we'll be talking about that next week, inshallah, probably over the course of two weeks, because it's a very long hadith, and there's a lot of detail. Uh, probably the next two weeks we'll talk about that. And then we go into the sixth year, bi'ithnillahi ta'ala. Wallahu rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.